We're going to study Matthew 13:35. I'm sorry, 53 to 14:13. And what I'll do is, uh, as we're going through, as I'm preaching through the text, we'll read the sections that we're going to be looking at. Then, <clears throat> let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves now before you. We lay, as it were, in the dust, in the presence of your greatness, just your sheer greatness and majesty and power and sovereignty. We bow before you as God, and we are creatures created by you, subservient to you, we, we are not to boast in your presence, for we are nothing in your sight. You are glorious beyond what we could even possibly imagine. And Father, we thank you, though, that we can also address you as Father, that you have reached down, you have condescended, you have humbled yourself, and you have come down to save us. And not just to deliver us, but to adopt us, to bring us into your very heart of hearts, to be your family, your children, your delight forever and ever and ever. Father, you did this at such a high cost, the death of your son, the terrible, horrible bleeding to death of your son upon a miserable cross. And this is all because of love. You are grace. You are an infinite reservoir of love. Your son is an infinite reservoir of love, willingly to sacrifice himself. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us now as we, as it were, think about the moment you have placed us in, the time in history, the society, the culture, the neighborhood, the workplace, the family, Help us, we pray. Help us to gain strength from the text this morning. Help us to be willing to, to respond properly to all of these incredible blessings that you've given us. Help us now through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, powerfully working in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A young man, a very insightful young man, uh, whose grandparents attended this church for a period of time, uh, wrote me a series of emails over the last year. And uh, he was wrestling with his own faith. He was a college-age student wrestling with issues of his own faith. And so he asked if he could ask me some questions and I would respond to them. And uh, it, that led to several, uh, inner, in, in, uh, several questions and, and such. And one of the questions that he asked me was this. He said, I really struggle with the fact that the, uh, Jesus, then the apostles, and all of them all died. Like they were all tortured and crucified or killed and died. And he says, doesn't that, doesn't that work against Christianity that God couldn't take care of all of his leaders? And I thought, well, that's, a, that's an insightful question and such. But I said, but actually, I think the opposite is true. Here we have an example of men who, were, who embraced the truth, who understood the truth, who saw the resurrected Christ, and who were willing to suffer and die for that truth. They would rather die than let go of that truth 
or deny that truth? And my answer to him was, is this argues powerfully for Christianity. It argues for Christianity, not against it. And in some ways, that's a, a way of looking at what we're going to go to today as we're studying through the book of Matthew. Jesus has come and he has introduced his kingdom. And he has invited people to come into his kingdom. But then he's talking about what it means to come into the kingdom. And last week we looked at the fact that there's, in one sense, the only way you come into the kingdom is if you're all in. And he told the parable in chapter 13 of the man who found the treasure in the field and he buried it and he went and sold everything that he had to get that treasure. The man who found the pearl of great price and he went and he sold everything. He was all in to get that pearl. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is. You must be all in. You must be all in. And what, one of the things that Jesus was doing was preparing his people preparing his people for what being all into the kingdom would be like. And part of what it's going to be like is you're going to pay a high price. There's going to be a cost. The kingdom is free. It's by grace. It's given to us undeserving sinners as a free gift. You're welcome to come. Come freely. Come and buy with no money, Jesus says in the book of Revelation. Here, here it's free. But coming in is going to cost you. You don't... You don't pay to get in the kingdom, but to be a kingdom member, you may have to pay a price. And Jesus is starting to prepare his people for this. And sometimes it can be really bad. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Let's go back a couple chapters that we've already looked at and look at some of the things that Jesus said. In Matthew 10, 21, Jesus says this, Now brother will deliver a brother to death, to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Jesus preparing his disciples for all ages that it could get that bad. It's hard to believe it getting worse than that. That's as bad as I think it could possibly get. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures the end will be saved. So you see, there's going to be a cost if you're all in in this kingdom. Look at verse 24. Jesus says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to have to, to, that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his own household? Therefore, do not fear them, he says. So it, it's going to come. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be bad. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're all in, Jesus is saying, if you follow my pathway, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Now, Jesus didn't, doesn't do anything. He doesn't command us to do anything that he himself doesn't already do. And we're going to see this in this text. What we're going to see in this text are two examples, two examples of two men who were all in and who paid a high price. One of them is Jesus, and one of them is John the Baptist. Let's look at that text. Let's look at the text. Look at uh, Matthew 13, 53. 
First is Jesus. It says this. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught, that's like his hometown as it were, you could translate that. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. The word means to be flabbergasted, to, be, to, 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 to have your jaw drop, to be, to be sort of out, uh, just out, out, out and out amazed. That's what they mean. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not, the, now somewhere around, things turn sour. Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So you see here, people were first stunned. They were utterly amazed. What, what is going on here? But then the sins of their fallen nature begin to get a grip upon them. Pride, envy. Who does he think he is? I went to high school with this guy. You know, he's, he's from around here. He's so uppity now. He thinks he's something. Pride, envy, then turned and became malice, that set hatred against him. And they were offended. They were offended. Now, the word offended there is the Greek word skandalizo, where we get our word scandalized. But the word meant, skandalizo in Greek, meant to trip somebody up, to even get them into a trap to make them to fall or something like that. And then it, it, the word eventually then morphed into a stumbling block. So, so first of all, scandalizo was to trip something and, and to get it to fall, maybe to fall into a trap or something. And then it was like stumbling block that was put in somebody's way so that they trip and fall to their destruction. It's a stumbling block. And then the word took on the meaning to be offended by somebody to the point that, that, that it, it, you, you, you turn away from something. Now, the word's already been used twice very recently in the book of uh, Matthew. For instance, in Matthew 13, 21, in this, our same chapter, it says this, And yet he had no root in himself, but endured only for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. There's how the word's used there. But Jesus also used the word earlier is a warning, as it were, a, a gentle warning to John the Baptist of all people. Look in chapter 11 and verse 6. Jesus, John says, are you the one or should we find another? And Jesus explains and then it says this. Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended. There's Scandalizo as well. Who's not offended because of me. Now here, the people of Nazareth are offended at Jesus. They're offended at him. They're, they're, they're angry, they're, they're frustrated, they're, they're rejecting him. And this is part of, and Jesus goes on to say this. Look in verse 57, he says, a prophet is not without honor. He's not without honor. A prophet has honor. It's honorable to be a prophet, except in his own country and in his own house, amongst his own family, a prophet is without honor. Now, I, I think we should be realistic here and realize Jesus himself had difficulty with his family. Jesus' family relationship with him was difficult. 
at times. Uh, very difficult. Uh, obviously, we've already seen something of that in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is teaching the multitude. His mother and brothers show up, and Jesus says, who is my mother and brother, my brothers? He's, he's sort of making a distance here between biological family as opposed to the spiritual family. But it got, even, it got even harsher at times as well. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Mark writes this, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought that he had gone bonkers over this religion thing and him being a, a rabbi, and he's not eating, and he's being self-destructive, and they're going to get him, and if it was in our day and age, they would want to admit him into some kind of psychiatric ward. That's how, he's out of his mind. But the worst example we have in Scripture of the difficulty and trials that came in Jesus' own family was the wicked things that his brothers suggested to him. In John chapter 7, it says this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he, could not, he would, did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. So there's a plot out to kill him in Judea, Jerusalem. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, these are Jesus' biological brothers, said to him, depart from here. And go into Judea, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he seeks to be made, while he himself seeks to be made known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Go down to Jerusalem, where they're plotting to kill you, and announce fully to all of those people who you are. And then John says this: for even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus had trials and tests in his family. So when Jesus tells us that we need to love him more than family itself, he knows that. He knows that. Jesus paid a price. He paid a price to be who he was and be true to who he was. He paid a price. His family didn't like him. His family misunderstood him. His family questioned him. They questioned his mental health. He faced unbelief. He faced malice from his, his hometown folk. And it was serious stuff. The gospel writers tell us that at one point in Nazareth, it may be this one, it may be another one, they actually dragged him to a cliff and were going to throw him down. That's how much his hometown hated him. But Jesus didn't deviate from who he was. He didn't, he didn't ask for their forgiveness. He didn't kowtow to them. He didn't go along with them. He, wasn't, he didn't allow himself to be canceled. He, he said, I am a prophet. I'm just not without, I'm not without honor. I'm just not without honor among you. And he didn't perform miracles among them because of their unbelief. Look at verse 58. He did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. That's not because unbelief cancels the power of God. Some people teach that. Oh, God can't work where there's unbelief. God can work anywhere. God raises the dead. You don't have to have much, you don't have much belief when you're dead. God raises the dead. God can do anything that he wants. But God chooses not to work in places where there is unbelief. God does work through belief. God, God honors belief, but nothing can stop him. Jesus did miracles in Nazareth even then. In fact, Mark tells us this in Mark 6. It says this, now he could do no mighty work there 
Uh, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Jesus' power was not taken away because of their unbelief. But then it says this, Mark goes on to say this, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages in a circle teaching. Why did Jesus not do works in Nazareth? Because what happens when Jesus does works when there's unbelief? We've already seen it. Jesus does work. He casts out demons. He heals a man. And they said, here's the power of the devil. That's how he does it. See, mighty works don't convince unbelief. And sometimes it hardens it. And so Jesus, he, 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 he doesn't want to harden the unbelief in there, but he marvels at the unbelief. And he says, I'm without honor. And he moves on to another place. And so you see, Jesus is paying a price for being all in, all in in the kingdom. Now, the next one is John the Baptist. Look at, John, look at uh, Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. Now, we're going to go back now in history a few, a few weeks or months where John the Baptist is killed. And it says this, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So this guy is sleeping with his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. Okay? And he's also king of, of Israel, uh, a king, a tetrarch of Israel. And uh, he's flaunting the law of God, the word of God, the will of God nationally. That's what's going on. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. When, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And one of the gospel writers says, up to half my kingdom. So Herod had been drinking pretty heavy at this point, you can imagine. So she, having, prompted, having been prompted by her mother, by the way, who could now you know, say, okay, I'll take a million dollars, or I'll take half your kingdom. Here's how malice is at work here. Give me John the Baptist's head here, right now, you could say, on a platter. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, all the secretaries of state, interior, senators were all there, he commanded them to be given to her. Him to be, he commanded it to be given to her. So they sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body, the headless body, and buried it and went and told Jesus. John the Baptist is a colossal man in Scripture. He is a giant of a man. He's one of my favorite people in Scripture. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is to prepare the way for Messiah. But he was a man, too, and he was confused at times. And in, of course, in, in, in chapter 11, he says, are you the coming one, or do we look for another and then in Matthew 11, 11, after Jesus sends John's disciples back, Jesus says this, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is, was not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He's one of the greatest men that ever lived. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. But a new kingdom has now come, which he introduced. John the Baptist was all in. John the Baptist was a great man. John the Baptist was uncompromising. John the Baptist was, the, he was all about Messiah. He must increase, I must decrease. It's all about him. I'm all in, I'm all in, I'm here for him. And it ended up that John the Baptist was then imprisoned because he was all in. In fact, John the Baptist was all in until death. You see, Herod was like so many people today. 
Herod believed that he could make his own rules. He could make his own morality. He could live out his own truth. And he was going to sleep with his sister-in-law. And she was going to bring her into his house and into his bedroom and make her his wife, as it were, no matter what his brother said. And he was going to do this as a leader, as a national leader in Israel. John is a prophet. And John has been called of God to, for one job. Prepare this nation for the coming of Messiah. Prepare them and prepare them by preaching repentance and turning and getting your act together and making the way straight for Messiah's coming. And you do this to the entire nation. And part of John's responsibility then is to call this nation to repentance. And because national leaders like Herod and their lifestyle has such a dominant a, a determination and an influence upon those who under them, he looked at Herod living in adultery with this woman and he said, what you are doing is wrong. What you are doing is sin. You need to repent and prepare for Messiah just like everyone else. And it landed him in prison. It landed him in prison. He's only been kept alive. He's only been kept alive because the other, the, the crowds and the multitude are for him. But then just like in Jesus, with Jesus, pride, Herodias especially, Malice, the sin of the world gets turned toward John, and she says, I want him dead. Now, John, he, he is uncompromising. John refuses to be silenced. John refuses to be canceled. John is probably in his early 30s. He's a strong and vigorous man. He's all full of life, but he's stuck in this prison. But John refuses to kowtow to Herod and to the morality of the day. And one day, and it's an ugly day, I, I, I don't like to even think about it. One day as John is languishing in that prison, the door is, the, the rusty key goes in the rusty lock and squeaks open, that door slams open. Guards come in and grab John. They pull him into another room pull his head back, they lay him down, and John knows exactly, there's a man with an ax or a sword right there, John knows exactly what's going to happen. And John's life is over, John is now going to be killed, John is executed, and they chop his head off. John was a brave man. Jesus and John, I'm speaking Jesus in his humanity now, he's fully God, these were two brave men. Now, dear friends, bravery is not people who are immune to fear. That's not bravery. All people fear. Bravery are people that can overcome their fears and do the right thing. John had fears. Jesus had fears. There, were, there was just human concerns that came upon him. They're human beings. In fact, look at Jesus' response. Look at verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a departed, deserted place by himself. His cousin John, the forerunner John, paid the ultimate price for being all in for the kingdom. It stirred up in Jesus once again, what we're going to see eventually in Gethsemane come to full force. It stirred up in Jesus again, that sense of anticipation, that sense of dread that came with knowing that he also was going to lay down his life, which we're about to celebrate here. He also was going to lay down his life. These were real people. It hurt Jesus that his family stung him like this. It hurt Jesus that Mary was confused and, and his brothers, James, who is going to be the writer of the book of James in the New Testament, wants him to go get killed. 
It hurt Jesus. It stung. He was lonely. He was without a family. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. I have no place to lie my head. It stung. But these two men were all in. And they were willing to pay the price. Okay, dear friends, how do we apply this to ourselves today? How do we apply this to ourselves today? Well, we are called to be Christians. We are called to be followers of Jesus Christ. We are called to embrace the kingdom of God as the pearl of great price and no compromises, no holding back, be 100% in. And we have two glorious examples of men who were not willing to be stopped by opposition, by hatred, by suffering, by death. They were all in, all in. And we have to ask ourselves, dear friends, I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, Am I prepared to pay a cost for being all in in the kingdom of God? Am I prepared to do that? Am I prepared to be all in? Am I determined to be a follower of Christ? As I told you two weeks ago, I quoted, I'm reading a book right now by Booker T. Washington. He's, he's a man that I deeply uh, uh, have learned from and admire. And Booker T's uh, book is entitled, My Larger Education. And I got to the chapter that's entitled, Some Exceptional Men and What I Have Learned from Them. And I was, I'm reading along, and all of a sudden a line jumped out at me that made me stop and think and meditate. And this is the line. He was talking about a man named Mr. Robert Ogden. This was a man who, who he had learned some great things from. And this is the line. Booker T. Washington writes this. Had Mr. Ogden been a weak man, seeking his own peace of mind and social position, he would not have been brave enough and strong enough to ignore adverse criticism in his efforts to serve the unfortunate of both races in the South. That line caught me <clears throat> because listen to how Booker T. Washington identified or defined a weak man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Had he been a weak man seeking his own peace of mind and social position? As soon as I read that, I was like, oh, my. Booker T. Washington just described 99% of people today. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. It's all what I can get out of life. It's the pile of cash that I can get. It's the fun that I can have. It's the pleasure that I can have. Hey, man, don't bother me. Don't disturb me. This is my little life. This is my little life. And I hope that I'm going to get a good job and make lots of money and, and, and have a beautiful wife or a beautiful husband, and I'm going to be able to buy nice stuff and go on vacation and buy this and buy that, and then, and then retire in great health, and then just play and play and play and live for myself and live for myself. The whole rest of my, And we admire people like this. And Booker T. Washington says, thank you very much, John. Booker T. Washington says, this is a weak man. This is weak. And then he said this. He would not have been brave enough and strong enough to ignore adverse criticism in his efforts to serve the unfortunate because this man gave his life to both blacks and whites in, in, in the South after, after uh, the Civil War. In other words, should I seek my own comfort? Should I seek my own happiness? Should I seek my own pile of money? Or should I forsake all? And follow Jesus, no matter what the cost. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. If a man does not have anything that he is willing to die for, he has nothing to live for. 
And that, that statement has had a huge impact upon my life. And I have to tell you, I have a real pastoral concern for all of us here, including myself, that we're trying to live as disciples in this very consumeristic culture that tells us all of the, it's just about consumerism and happiness. But the other thing that I'm concerned about pastorally is that we are in an increasingly hostile culture as Christians. And we are going to be forced to ask ourselves, am I all in? Am I willing to pay the, cost, the price? Will I endure to the end? Will I be like Jesus or like John? Paul warns us. He warned Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he said this, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I want to focus ourselves very directly today on something. I'm going to read something to you, and then I'm going to apply it to ourselves. And this has been incredibly important for me over the last year and a half as I've been watching the increased hostility toward Christianity, and I've had to wrestle with the fact, am I willing to pay this price? I'm sharing with you important men in my life, and one of them is a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is so important in my life that I named uh, the middle name of one of my sons after him, Alexander after him. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, suffered in, in the Soviet prison camp uh, as, a, as a dissident to the so Soviet Union. And then he, when he was out, let out, he risked everything and continued to write books. They were smuggled out of the country. He was eventually kicked out of the country of Russia, his beloved Russia and such. The last thing that, Mar that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote within hours before they, they came into his, his room, got him, and, and, and drug him uh, as a prisoner out of Russia and kicked him out of the country. He wrote it on a typewriter. And in Russia, in the Soviet Union at that point, all typewriters were registered. They have a registered number, uh, number on them. All typewriters were registered, and you had to register your typewriter with the state. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have any of that. And so dissidents would write their things out on typewriters, and they would secretly pass them out. He was writing on an illegal typewriter, and he wrote a little five-page treatise, a little five-page letter, and it's called Live Not By Lies. And Ben put it on our church website. If you would like to read it, I would encourage you to read it. But I'm going to read you some sections of it. It's called Live Not By Lies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is living in the Soviet Union. If you speak against the government at that point, you will be arrested. And you will be arrested. And if you make it, you will be taken to the Lubyanka. The Lubyanka was the secret prison of the KGB. If you, most people who got to the Lubyanka were taken downstairs and shot in the back of the head. But those were the lucky ones. The unlucky ones were taken to the Gulag Archipelago, which is a series of secret prison camps spread all the way across Russia, all the way into Siberia, in which those cases you would either freeze to death, starve to death, or you would actually uh, die in a, in, a, in a mine, a coal mine, or something like that. You probably were never heard of again. And so you didn't speak out. You didn't speak out. You were silenced. You were canceled. The entire society was. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is writing about that. Listen to some of his words. They put anybody they want on trial. They put sane people in, in asylums, and that's what they used to do, especially with pastors. They would put pastors in insane asylums and fill them up with drugs and make them insane. Always they. We are powerless. Things have almost reached rock bottom, he typed. This is in 1974 he typed this. Things have almost reached rock bottom. A universal spiritual death has already touched us all, and physical death will soon flare up and consume us and our children. But as before, we still smile in a cowardly fashion and mumble with our tongues tied. What can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. 
We have been so helplessly dehumanized that for today's ration of food, we are willing to abandon all of our principles, our souls and efforts of our predecessors, as well as the opportunities of our descendants. Just don't disturb our fragile existence. We lack resolution, he says. We don't fear nuclear death. We just fear, we just fear acts of civil courage. We won't even speak out. We're afraid to lag behind the herd, to take one step alone, and suddenly to find ourselves without white bread, heating gas, and a Moscow registration. What was drummed into our ears at political courses, we have now internalized. Live comfortably, and all will be well ever after. You cannot escape your environment and social conditions. Just keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, agree with all that's going on. He goes on to write, gags have been stuffed into our mouths, and nobody wants to listen to us, and nobody asks our opinion. How can we force them to listen to us? He said, well, we can't go out and protest, or we'll be shot, or we'll be put in a prison camp. We can't do that. In the West, they can do that. We can't do that. And then he goes on to write this. Is the circle closed? Is there really no way out? Is there only one thing? He says, is there only one thing left to do? To wait without taking any action? Maybe something will happen by itself, but it will never happen. As long as, now listen to this very carefully, especially, dear Christians, I hope you're making the connections right now. But listen, but it will never happen as long as we daily acknowledge, extol, and strengthen, and not sever ourselves from, the most perceptible of all its aspects. Lies. Lies. He said, they were violent, and they came in, and they, made a, and they made a revolution, and they made us all do this and all that. But violence grows old, and it's only kept alive. This whole thing is only kept alive by lies, he says, lies. He goes on to say this, it demands from us only obedience to lies and daily participation in lies. And this submissiveness is the crux of the matter. So then he gives his answer. The simplest and most accessible key to our self-neglected liberation is this. This is what he's calling for. Personal non-participation in lies. We should be obstinate about this one small point. Let them be in control, but without any help from us. This opens a breach in the imaginary encirclement caused by our inaction. We're, we're, we're breaking out here now. It is the easiest thing for us to do and the most destructive for the lies. Because when somebody renounces lies, it cuts short their existence. He thinks of lies like viruses. He said they're like a virus. They can only survive in a living organism. He says, okay, we're not mature enough to march in the street. Okay, we can't shout the truth out loud. But let us refuse to say what we do not think. Let us refuse to say the lies. Let us refuse to parrot them. He says this, if we did not paste together the dead bones and scales of ideology, if we did not sew together the rotten rags, we would be astonished how quickly the lies would be rendered helpless and would subside. That which would be naked would then appear, really appear naked before the whole world. So in our timidity, let us make a choice whether to remain consciously a servant of falsehood, and of course, it is not out of inclination to feed one's family that one raises one's children in the spirit of lies. In other words, hey, I'm going to keep the lies up because i got to feed these kids. i got to keep this job. i got to keep this going on. But he says this, or to shrug off the lies and become an honest man 
worthy of respect from one's children and contemporaries. So then he lists a bunch of people. Let's vow not to do this. I will not sign, write, or print in any way a single phrase which, is not, which, which in his opinion distorts the truth. I won't utter a phrase in public or private conversation which I don't believe to be true. He even says, I will immediately walk out of a meeting, session, lecture, performance, or film if he hears a speaker tell lies or purvey ideological nonsense or shameless propaganda. He writes, some will lose their jobs, but there will be no loopholes for anyone to be, who wants to be honest. On any given day, we are going to be asked to give these lies. He says either truth or falsehood towards spiritual independence or towards spiritual servitude. And he was not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul. Don't let him be proud of his progressive views. Don't let him boast that he is an academic. He's an academic or a people's artist or a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am part of the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I am fed and kept warm. That's what Booker T. Washington calls a coward. He says, if we are too frightened, then we should stop complaining that we are being suffocated. We are doing this to ourselves. If we bow down even further and wait longer, our brothers, the biologists, will then help to, make, to bring nearer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes restructured. If we're too frightened, he said, then just join the herd, but our children will despise us. I think there's something to this, dear friends. This has liberated me. I have taken up his challenge. I've decided I will not live by lies anymore. I will not live by lies anymore. I have decided that if God says it, I'm going to live by that. I'm not going to live by the lie anymore that you can live a life apart from God. That you can just call your own life and live. I'm, I'm not going to live by that lie. And I'm not going to support that. And I'm not going to encourage it. And if people start talking to me about that. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be mean. I'm not going to be belligerent. I'm not going to be nasty. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to genuinely care for the other person. I'm just not going with them. I'm, just gonna, I'm, I'm not going with you. I can't go with you on that. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to believe. That, I'm not going to propagate and believe the lie. That life is about, about consuming and, and, and gathering money and stuff and pleasure. I'm not, gonna do, I'm not going there with you. If somebody says, well, I have my truth, my truth, my little possession that is my truth. This is my truth. This is what I think. This is my truth. And my truth is different than your truth. I'm going to say, dear friend, I'm not going there with you. I don't believe that. I think that's a lie. I think we need to once again recapture truth. Truth is truth. And if something is true, it's true. It's true for everybody. It's true. There's truth and there's falsehood. Oh, there's opinion. There's, there's, there, there's tastes. There's that. I'll give you that one. But don't talk to me about your own personal truth. I'm not going there. That's a lie. People are free to do and think whatever they want to do and think. They are autonomous beings. And they can define their own reality in any way that they want. I ain't going with you on that. No. That's a lie. I'm poking holes in that lie. I'm not following you. I'm not tracking with you. I'm not going with you on that. People can sleep with whoever they want to as long as nobody is harmed. Nope, not going there. That's a lie. God is God. And God makes the rules. God's ethic is the only ethic. No, I'm sorry, dear friend. I can't go with you on that. I'm not going to hate you, but you're wrong. That's a lie. Marriage is what we say it is. We will define what marriage is. 
Marriage can be between a man and a woman. Marriage can be between a man and a man. Marriage can be between a woman and a woman. We define what marriage is. We are autonomous human beings, and we have the right to define what marriage is. I'm not going with you on that. That's a lie. I can't say that. I can't propagate that. That goes against what God himself has said. Marriage is between a man and a woman, a biological man, a biological woman. I have the right to define who I am. I have the right to define what sex I am, and I have the right to demand you to treat me in that way. Dear one, I am so sorry, and I love you, and you're my friend, but that's a lie, and I'm not going there. I have decided I will not live by lies anymore. I am Christ's free man. And I will love you, and I will pray for you, and I will defend you, and I will protect you, and I will do good to you, but I will not follow you in that lie. I will not live by lies. If a baby is an inconvenience, the woman has the right to terminate its life. That is choice. That's a lie. I'm not going there. I will not go there. It's murder. I love you, and if you need help with that baby, and dear friends, I have said this in counseling, I will adopt your baby. Don't have the abortion. I, Jan and I, will raise your baby. Don't have the abortion. I'm not going to live by a lie. I'm not going to live by lies anymore. All religions are valid and true. I love, I love my Muslim friends, and I do have Muslim friends. I love my Muslim friends. I love my Jewish friends. I have met Hindus and Buddhists and secularists, but I will not propagate the lie that all religions are of equal value. No, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm not going to follow your lies. Dear friends, live not by lies. The, the culture is just pressing in all these lies. We have to be willing to pay the price to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And one of them is to live not by lies. Count the cost. Count the cost. And guess what, dear friends? We are just about to eat what represents the body of Jesus and drink what represents the blood of Jesus because Jesus Christ paid the price paid the price. He died for the kingdom. And all he's asking us is to be all in like he was. Count the cost. Count the cost. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we ask that you would please be with us as your word has laid upon us heavy things. A beheaded prophet a rejected man from his family in his hometown, lonely paths that may lead to death, and you call us to that. Father, we live in a culture that wants to conform us, chide us, cancel us, belittle us, convict us, maybe even fire us. Father, help us not to be slaves to this world. Help us to be Christ's free women and men Help us not to live by lies. Help us to live by your word. Father, this kingdom is a pearl of great price. Your son is the pearl of great price. Help us to let nothing separate us from him, but to be fully 
and completely committed. Here we are. Take us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.